We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Mark chapter 6. If you don't have one, we provided one for you in the seat back in front of you. It would be good if you could pull that out and turn there, please. Mark chapter 6 is where we'll be at. I wasn't supposed to sing. I got a cold and I knew singing would mess me up, but it was such good singing I had to do it. Mark chapter 6. You've heard Michael address the theme this morning, but I want to present it to you straightforward this morning. Where do you look for satisfaction? We live in a world where, all, where, where we're always seeking satisfaction, yet rarely finding it. That characterizes our world. We, if we're honest, we chase many things believing they will provide us satisfaction. I remember uh, when I bought my first boat, I had to have it. Saved up money for it. Spent time doing research to find out the best one I thought for me. Then I found it. And just, it was just the one I wanted. I bought it and was even able to talk the person down a thousand dollars before I got it. So it had to be the right one, right? It didn't matter if it was winter time. This was on the East Coast, so it's not a California winter. It was about 35 degrees. I was going to get it out on the, uh, get the boat out on the water. So when I got to the boat ramp, it was about 8 a.m., backed the boat into the water, uh, pushed it off the trailer, started it up, pulled it over to the dock. It felt good. This was my first boat. I ran back to the truck, which had the trailer kind of sitting on the boat ramp to, to park the trailer and begin walking da- back down to the water, eyeing my boat as a new boat owner. As I walked back, though, I started to, as I was really admiring my boat, I thought, man, you know, the boat's sitting kind of funny in the water. It's kind of sitting low on the back end in the water. And uh, then it hit me. I hadn't put the plug in the boat. My boat was sitting funny in the water because it was literally taking on water quickly. It was sinking. And I only had two options. I could let this boat sink that I just invested money in, or I could jump in and try to figure out where the, the plug hole was, which is under the boat, now underwater, on this winter morning. So I did. I jumped in, closing all. Jumped in, feeling around aimlessly, never even thought about the plug hole before until I eventually plugged up the boat. And it's winter. Remember that. So 8 o'clock, 38 degrees, I jumped in fully, fully clothed and got out. Spent the next 30 minutes sitting in the boat freezing, trying to get the water out, trying to get the bilge pump to work. Finally got it to work. When I finished, I literally just got the trailer, put it back on the trailer, drove home. <laughs> and here's the reality. As I, as I drove home soaking wet, I had no extra clothes. Seats are wet in the car now. I'm freezing you know, the satisfaction that I thought this boat was going to give me, it just didn't add up at all. Now, you might not share that exact story, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. You have been there. You have thought, if I just get X, if I just do Y, then I'll be satisfied. Maybe it is a boat, maybe it's a car, maybe it's a house, a job, a relationship, maybe it's getting married. Maybe it's having kids. Maybe having two kids. Maybe getting the kids out of the home. Maybe having grandkids. The reality is there are many things we believe will bring us 
lasting satisfaction, yet when we actually attain them, they never really deliver what they promise. Where do you look for satisfaction? That's the question we're going to consider this morning. What are you chasing that you believe will ultimately satisfy you? Here's what I want us to take from our text this morning, Mark chapter 6. So if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down. We're going to see that Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who overflows with compassion and provides our true satisfaction. Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who overflows with compassion, and he's the one who provides our true satisfaction. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. This is God's word to us. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great, a, a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them and they all ate and they all were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. God, we again pause after reading your word. And Lord, we know that without your word, applied by your Holy Spirit, we are wasting our time this morning. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would illuminate our hearts. Lord, that you would draw us close to you, that you would reveal our sin. But more than that, you would show us Christ. Help us to see, Lord, he's the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who provides for us and satisfies our soul. And Lord, we, I know, I do this as well, we're all here. We often look to things we should not to satisfy us. We make idols out of things that will not satisfy us in the end. Lord, this morning, help us to see the foolishness of that. Help us to see that you are the one who's done everything necessary, and the one who reaches out to us in this overflowing compassion to offer us true satisfaction. Lord, be with our time. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've, as we've noted since our study in Mark, Mark writes his gospel to really advance two dominant themes uh, one being the identity of Jesus. We've been hitting that one pretty hard. I've been asking us as we even began this series for you to be asking the question, who is Jesus to you? But the second theme, though, is the explanation on what it means to follow Jesus. Both of these themes, they're going to confront us in our text this morning. They both really arise to the surface. 
And the feeding of the 5,000 will probably be a familiar passage for many of you. And it's an important one. It's a popular one. It's really the only, it is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that we find in all four Gospels. It speaks to the identity of Jesus as the good shepherd, the one who provides, the one who satisfies. And yet it also has much to say to us, church, regarding how we are to faithfully follow Jesus in this world. So this morning we're going to really just retrace this narrative and walk through it. I want to do so under two really broad headings. The first being Jesus' overflowing compassion. We'll look at that in verses 30 through 34. And then we're going to see Jesus' satisfying provision in 35 through 44. So overflowing compassion in 30 through 34 and 35 through 44 will consider his satisfying provision. So first, overflowing compassion. Now, verse 30 returns us to the narrative which began back in verses 1 through 13 of this chapter, the telling of the apostles' first apostolic assignment, which was strategically interrupted last week by the events surrounding John the Baptist's death. We noted how John wanted, wanted us to consider, really, we said the cost of following Jesus by way of this, this story that interrupts the narrative of John's death. We called it a strategic interruption. But now we come back to the conclusion of this, of the verses 1 through 13. In verses 30, it says, the, look at it, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus had empowered and sent out the disciples, just as he does each of us uh, with a job to do. And the disciples experienced great success, we read. So they returned to really debrief, evaluate their successes and maybe their failures and see what's, what to make of it. This is a model we often see in Jesus' ministry, and probably one we should note. Jesus instructs, Jesus empowers, Jesus sends, the disciples return, they report, and then he further instructs. They'd preach the gospel of repentance, just as John and Jesus did. And because they had been granted kingdom power, many demons were cast out and the sick were healed, we read. You could just imagine their excitement as they retold the events, no doubt The phrase there, all they had done and taught, is a loaded one. However, amidst all the excitement, Jesus recognizes something they probably didn't and something we far too often miss as well. After hearing their reports, Jesus responds in verse 31. He said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Why? Keep reading. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. The people were unending. The ministry needs were great to the point they didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus commands them to to come away by themselves to a a desolate place for a while and rest. In the face of overwhelming ministry, the Son of God gives orders to the disciples to get away to a quiet place and rest. Jesus understood more than anyone the demands of ministry. And he knew the need for rest. Jesus knows our need for rest, your need for rest. We live in a world where rest is an enemy because we live in a world where typically our activity is said what defines us and gives us identity. First thing we typically ask people when we meet a new person is what? What do you do for a living, right? Yes, we're to work hard. Yes, we are to get up early and go to bed late. The Christian life is described as a race and it's described as a battle, There's no time for laziness in the kingdom, but we need rest. 
We need to take time and get away to be recharged in the Lord. Our ministry and our careers, your career, does not define you. Christ does. But this retreat for rest doesn't last long. Look at verse 33. The people who are coming and going in verse 31 see the disciples going into the boat and recognize them and they run ahead on foot from the towns and are waiting for the disciples. So when the disciples land their boat and go ashore, they find a great crowd gathered, waiting on them. Notice how Jesus responds. When his time is invaded by the crowds, does he get frustrated? Does he get angry or maybe even anxious? No, I think here we actually find some of the most beautiful and important words concerning the heart of our Savior towards us. Look what it says. When he went ashore, he saw a crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion, the text says. This word is used often particularly describing Jesus in the Gospels. It's a strong word. It's a verb with with really depth to its meaning. It speaks of being moved in the inward parts, in the gut maybe. In other words, the effect here was not just psychological, it was physical for Jesus. We find this word back in chapter 1, verse 41. We remember when we described Jesus' deep compassion or his pity, the word was there, towards the man with leprosy. But it's used in all the Gospels, as we see here, to describe Jesus' posture, maybe his emotion towards the crowd, towards people, towards you and me. When Jesus looked out upon this crowd, he is stirred with compassion to the very core of his being. He overflows with compassion for the people. And it moves him to take action and do something. Why? Verse 34 says, Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Very pointed and very familiar language here. Sheep are defenseless animals, dependent in every way upon their shepherd. They're vulnerable without their shepherd. The shepherd is their protector. He's the one who provides guidance and sustenance. These people were leaderless, defenseless. They couldn't even feed themselves. Jesus' compassion is due to the fact they are sheep without a shepherd. Pointed language, yes, but familiar language. And we've already read one passage together as a church on this language in the Old Testament. But thousands of years before in the wilderness, Moses pleaded with the Lord to raise up a leader, a shepherd, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep without a shepherd, Numbers 27, 17. Then in the book of Ezekiel, as we read a portion of it, God speaks judgment against the evil shepherds of Israel who had neglected and abused the people, the sheep. But he also makes a promise. And I will, the the conclusion of the verse we read together, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my shepherd David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now we know the book of Ezekiel to be describing a time period hundreds of years beyond the death of King David. So this passage speaks and points to another shepherd who would come. This shepherd king, this one who would come in the likeness of David, the shepherd his people has now appeared in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the shepherd, the good shepherd, arrived to, to guide and feed his sheep by his word, as we read in Ezekiel. Look, This is exactly what we see him doing, right? Look down at verse 34. And his compassion overflows in verse 34, and he began to teach them many things. Let me ask you this morning, do you understand yourself as a sheep? A helpless, vulnerable sheep needing a shepherd. Do you understand your need for a shepherd this morning? The Bible says very pointedly, we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 53, 6. In our sin, we have all turned away from the Lord. Very important language here. We have wandered off the path. And because of this, we find ourselves in a desperate and dangerous and vulnerable place. And yet Jesus comes to us as our compassionate good shepherd. His compassion moves him to action here. In John 10, the subsequent retelling a little bit further on of this verse, we read Jesus' declaration that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus looks out upon this crowd and upon each of us this morning and he responds with compassion. A compassion that would lead him to the cross where he would die for your sins and mine. He's a good shepherd, a protector, a sustainer, and he's our rescuer if we accept him by faith. If you're not a Christian this morning, how do you believe God looks at you this morning? What expression do you think he has on his face towards you? Do you see him as being angry with you? Maybe desiring to punish you? Maybe you think he doesn't even notice you or he doesn't care about your current situation. Consider this text this morning and the truth that God looks upon us in Christ with compassion. Do you know Jesus as your good shepherd? Have you recognized your state as a sheep and your need for his compassion upon from the cross? Church, maybe I'll just ask us this morning, how do we see people? Do we see people as disruptions to our day, interruptions to our schedule, or do we see them as Jesus did? Do we look upon those in our cities as obstacles, as those who threaten our timetable, or do we look upon them with compassion, a compassion deep in our gut that moves us to action? Do we see them as sheep in need of a shepherd? Jesus does, and we should as well. So first we talk about, we looked at this overflowing compassion, but secondly, Jesus is our satisfying provision. We read in verse 35 how the day began to get late and the disciples bring to Jesus' attention this fact. Now they actually command the Son of God to take action. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Disciples are like us. They're pragmatic. They're logical here. 
and quick to inform Jesus what plan of action he should take. This is nothing new, though. Back in one, chapter 1, verse 37, after Jesus slips away to a desolate place to, to pray, the, the crowds are gathered outside and the disciples respond, everyone is looking for you, insinuating, Jesus, get out here, the people are here, what are you doing? And when they're in the boat and the storm arises, they ask him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Again, Jesus, get up and do something. We find something similar here in our text. It's late. The people are hungry. They're weak. And we learn from verse 44, the number of men was 5,000. Add women and children, maybe the number could be as high as 20,000. They instruct Jesus on the best plan of action here. Send them away to go into the countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. How often are we like the disciples here? How often do we instruct the Son of God on what the best plan for our life is? On what He needs to implement in our lives? How often do we inform Jesus the best plan of action, the best strategy for our life? We know what Jesus is supposed to do. Without really considering who He is fully, we often inform Him on what He needs to do. And sadly... This oftentimes shows up in the sad place of our prayer life, amen, right? How often do we play, please God, do X, before we've ever asked the Lord, what should we do in this situation? What should I learn from this situation? What, what do you have for me here? How often do we say, Lord, we already come to that conclusion, and we pray towards that end. Lord, do this, please. But Jesus responds with a command of his own here in verse 37. You give them something to eat. The you here is emphatic. Disciples say, send them away. Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. Jesus' command seems really unreasonable and, if we're honest, a bit crazy. The disciples respond, shall we go and buy 200 denarii, eight months' wages worth of bread, and give it to them to eat? Their point being, Jesus, we don't, we don't have that kind of cash, Remember? Matthew gave up that tax-collecting deal. Then Jesus, he asked an even stronger question here in verse 38. A stranger one, maybe. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. So they did. You can imagine this conversation going around, right? What do you have? For what reason? Don't worry about it. Just let me know. And when they found out, they come back, five and two fish. What is Jesus doing here? I think Jesus is leaving no doubt that this problem is well beyond their resources, but not beyond his, right? Jesus has come to demonstrate not the power and sufficiency of the disciples, but the power and sufficiency of the Son of God. He is calling them to do something they cannot do apart from themselves, apart from him. This is the Christian life. This is discipleship. This is following Jesus. You can't do this on your own. And just think, he, he could have fed these people in a hundred different ways. It's the same Jesus who has just calmed the sea. He's the one who calmed the demoniac. He's the one who raised the little girl from the dead the chapter earlier. He could have made bread fall from heaven or pop up from the ground. But he chose to have the disciples round up five loaves and two fish and bring it to him. 
God often does this. He will often allow problems to invade your life which are beyond your ability and resources to handle. He will do that. He will call you to tasks you can never accomplish on your own. Why? So that you have to look to Him. So that you might see Him and come to know Him for who He truly is. But this only happens when we come to the end of ourselves. And this is where the disciples are. Here it is, Lord. <laughs> We've done what you ask, right? Here, here, here's all that we have here. What the disciples had was insufficient. What you have is insufficient. But God wanted it. And God used it. And he used it to work this great miracle. God is not limited by your capacity to do or not do something. His kingdom is not contingent upon what we have or what we lack. Your faithfulness in following Jesus is not contingent upon past failings or things in your life you're afraid of. If you'll submit them to Christ, He can use you. He chooses to use us. And all of our weaknesses and past failings in order to reveal himself to us and make his glory known to the world. And he requi- all he requires is our reliance and our obedience. Look, there's so much application here for us as a church. I mean, in one sense, we have a lot. Praise God. We have a property, we have a building, we have people. We have a lot. In another sense, man, we ain't got hardly anything. I mean, you got a a pastor who's been leading you for about a year and a half, his first pastorate. Look around. We're a bunch of misfits. If you don't think you are, you're not being very honest with yourself. If we actually think we can accomplish something for the kingdom in and of ourselves, we are fools. But we are likewise fools if we miss the fact that we can accomplish great things for the kingdom when we take the little that we have and we submit it to Christ fully and rely upon him and say, here it is, Lord, use us. And this obedience by the disciples really paves the way for this miraculous meal which reveals the, the true glory and the person of the Son of God. Verse 39 Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. I mean, just imagine the disciples. What? Do what? Just sit down. I don't know why. Just sit. For what? I don't know. Just sit, please, in these groups. Just get into these groups. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Everything in this narrative has been a prelude to this. And we're not told how Jesus did this. We're not really told what he did or even when the bread began to multiply. We don't know if the crowd actually saw the miracle itself. Did Jesus just keep breaking the bread off the loaves and giving it to the disciples? They just kept going until it never really got smaller. We don't know. But we do know this. All eight. Everyone. Everyone got their fill. You read commentaries on this, and there's so many ways that people try to 
explain this away. They ground it up into little pieces. and It's ridiculous. This was no airplane food, right? You get a five-hour flight today and you get a couple bags of peanuts or you buy the expensive six-inch sandwich with four inches of meat and then you're left to choke down the other two inches of bread with that little cup and ice soda they give you. It's not that type of meal. Everyone ate until they were full. And there was more left over than when they started. They were satisfied, as verse 42 says. They were filled up. They had that Thanksgiving dinner feel. Jesus provided. And what he provided satisfied. It was satisfying provision. And now as amazing as this meal was, and as generous as Jesus is here, there's a greater truth than simply Jesus satisfying physical hunger here. Yes, they witnessed divine power, divine compassion, and divine provision like never before, but Jesus is not the crowd's permanent source of physical satisfaction. And we know that from John chapter 6, the retelling of this same story. We read that the crowds returned the next day after this miracle in search of more bread. They came back for breakfast like, hey man, let's need some more. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, not because of the miracles that revealed my true identity, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give you. And then he makes this statement in 635, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our search for ultimate satisfaction ends in Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is the author and source of true and ultimate satisfaction. He is the bread of life. With him, our spiritual hunger is filled and our thirst quenched forever. Let me come back to that question I began with. What are you chasing that you believe will ultimately satisfy you? If it's not Christ, it will not. It may provide some momentary pleasure. It will not satisfy you. Christ alone provides our true satisfaction. He is the the bread of life. He is the one who came and lived among us as we should have lived. And he is the one who died upon the cross for our sins, the punishment we deserved. And he's the one who rose again ensuring eternal life for all who place faith in him. He's the bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. If you're not a Christian this morning, have you considered Christ? Have you considered the one who overflows with compassion towards you? Have you considered your sin and the fact that you are, as the Bible says, a wandering sheep, from God due to your sin and you're in a desperate place you are sheep without a shepherd you see your need for the shepherd this morning if so Christ stands this morning as your good shepherd the one who can forgive your sins and bring you back into his fold if you place faith in him Church, we need to be honest this morning. 
was trying to be honest as I prepared this text. and that We know Christ to be the all-satisfying bread of heaven. We far too often chase things that will never satisfy. We chase success. We chase notoriety, status, financial security, relationships. We chase the applause of man far too often. And, and we believe wrongly that they'll bring us lasting satisfaction. We know that's not the case. We need to repent this morning. We need to confess again how Jesus is the bread of life. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who provides our true satisfaction. Peter's words come to mind here. Jesus says to him, he says to Jesus, where shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. This morning we have the the blessing of making that confession as the church again through taking the, the supper. This morning, before we take the supper, we'll reflect a bit. I want you to really ask that question of yourself. Where are you, what are you chasing? Where are you seeking satisfaction? If you're a believer this morning, you know that true satisfaction is found solely in Christ alone in his life, in his death, in his body, in his blood. If you're not a believer this morning, as we partake of the supper, we would ask that you observe. We don't want you to check out. We want you to ask some hard questions. You understand yourself as a sheep, as the Bible says. Because of your sin, you've wandered away from Christ, and you are in need of a shepherd. And have you considered Christ this morning, who is your good shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep? Church, let's be honest this morning about where we fall short. For ushers, would uh, please come forward. Pastor Sam, in just a minute, will lead us in distributing and taking the elements. Before we do that, though, I just want to pause for maybe a, maybe a moment.